John Ziegler here. Excited to announce that we have our first sponsor of the Individual One podcast. Now, as you'd probably expect, I do not do endorsements unless I actually use the product. And I just started using this one. It's Imbue CBD. If you're a golf fan like I am, and you've probably read about how CBD is all the rage with all sorts of respected people raving about the various positive physical aspects of CBD, especially among people like me who are, let's face it, starting to feel the impact of aging. Recently, I started trying multiple products from Imbue CBD, and I can already tell that, among other things, I am for sure sleeping more soundly. And my wife says she loves the Imbue CBD facial cream, although, to be honest, she doesn't need it. In case you haven't heard, CBD is the powerful extract from the hemp version of cannabis. And while it may offer many of the health benefits of marijuana, there's no high, it's legal, and doesn't require a prescription. The source I trust for CBD is Imbue CBD. This is a top-of-the-line product and classy in every way. Consequently, Imbue CBD is not inexpensive, but I got you a discount to explore all the many ways CBD might be able to help you. Go to ImbueCBD.com and get 25% off when you enter John Z. Again, enter John Z for 25% off at IMBUECBD.com. That's ImbueCBD.com, promo code John Z. This is episode number 105 of the Individual One podcast. For the record, individual number one is President Donald J. Trump. And I am your host, John Ziegler. We are broadcasting from Los Angeles, California, and distributed internationally by the Global Story Network. This is the critically acclaimed program which takes an honest and hard look at the presidency of Donald J. Trump from a conservative perspective. A real conservative perspective, not a fake one, because unfortunately, no one else is willing or able to tell the real truth about him. And unlike the corporate media, we here at the Individual One podcast have most definitely not been compromised or co-opted by either side. Welcome to the program. Please subscribe, rate, review, and share it via social media. Follow us on Twitter at Individual One Pod. That's at Individual, the number one pod. The title of this episode is Trump Has Lost the Data War Again. And decisively, for at least a second time, uh, President Trump has lost the expectations game when it comes to the medical damage directly caused by the coronavirus. And that matters, uh, especially in an election year. It's not the most important thing, but it does matter with regard to whether or not we're likely to have a second Donald Trump term. The stats in the United States continue to be horrendous in comparison to many other countries, although not necessarily on a per capita basis, but as far as totality is concerned, over 1.2 million confirmed cases of the coronavirus in the United States, around 73,000 deaths, and no real sign of dramatic reductions in that number on a daily basis. We have passed the old, more optimistic projections that it indicated that by uh, the beginning of summer and the alleged uh, fading of all of this, at least temporarily, that we would have about 60,000 deaths in the United States. The new projections, although there's been a great dispute about how, how many of these projections are actually approved by the Trump administration uh, in any way, shape, or form, but the new projections are now over 100,000 deaths, maybe well over 100,000 deaths, By the middle of summer, Trump himself is even acknowledging it could be 100,000 deaths. And that would destroy any effort by Donald Trump to be able to claim any semblance of victory here. He, He originally claimed, and I was one of those who was too naive to understand that he was completely off his rocker and no idea what he was talking about. Uh, But he originally seemed to set the bar here at around 12,500 deaths, which was what the swine flu caused in 2009 and 2010. He had called that reaction a disaster at the beginning of all this. Uh, We have long since passed that, uh, at least as far as numbers. And I was wrong when I thought that we would not do this. We have passed Italy, although not on a uh, per capita uh, basis, but he had at least a chance 
once uh, his people, including Dr. Anthony Fauci, said that we could lose up to 240,000 people. And then the next week said, ah, well, actually, we're wrong about that. Uh, never mind. Uh, it's going to be 60,000. There was a chance that if we ended up significantly under 100,000, that Trump could claim some semblance of victory there. He'll, he'll try, regardless of what the numbers actually are. But for that to have any potency whatsoever, that appears now to be lost. Uh, by the way, speaking of Fauci, uh, I don't understand why he doesn't get any accountability in all of this, because he has been wrong at least three times. Uh, back in January, he predicted that this would not be a major factor in the United States. Then, of course, uh, he claimed that we would lose up to 240,000 people. Then he went down to 60,000. And now that's been passed. And yet, Somehow, some way, much like uh, the governor of New York, uh, uh, Cuomo, uh, Anthony Fauci is still a media darling. He's still untouchable. Uh, I don't get it. He's been wrong constantly. Uh, the task force, which is he, which he is basically the head of, Trump had uh, implied yesterday he was going to get rid of that task force. There was some blowback, of course, for that. And now instead, uh, Trump has said that he is essentially giving the task force a new focus. And then the focus would be on reopening America. Uh, is this a way of him pushing Fauci out? I don't know. Uh, you know, it's always very hard to interpret uh, Trump what's a, what is just the happenstance and what is by some sort of design. Uh, I have suggested previously that he not fire Fauci that he just push him aside, that he take away his TV time and he slowly take away his authority. Uh, because as long as Fauci is in charge, uh, the United States is never, ever, ever going to reopen. Correct. Uh, I mean, even if we got a vaccine at this point, my, my sense is that uh, Fauci would still find a way for us not to be completely open uh, because uh, Fauci is totally and completely invested, as a doctor is, is inclined to be, in the idea of stopping, ending all deaths related to the coronavirus. And uh, I, I have never accepted that that is a valid premise. Uh, that is a breaking of what I thought the deal was. I thought the deal here was we flatten the curves, we get our hospitals ready for the worst case scenario, we hope for the best, we try to buy time, maybe a miracle happens, but if a miracle doesn't happen, guess what? That's part of death is part of life. And we try to minimize it. We protect the vulnerable as much as we can. Uh, but we don't end all life uh, in, in a way that doesn't make any damn sense and isn't going to help anything. Uh, well, uh, as long as Fauci is in charge, we can never uh, take that perspective. And I don't know whether or not this is an effort to try to push him aside or not. But that's what Trump has done with regard to the task force. Now, yesterday, Trump did an interview with David Muir of ABC News. And this was interesting on a number of levels. First of all, Trump very, very rarely does sit-down interviews with non-conservative media outlets. Correct. Because, let's face it, he's a wussy. Correct. Uh, and he knows he'll get exposed if he uh, doesn't face somebody who is friendly to him. Uh, now, the first thing, and this might be the most important thing, even though it has nothing to do with the substance of the interview, the first thing that I thought was absolutely ludicrous, I mean, it was absolutely... It was just flat-out ridiculous. Well, about the interview was the fact that Muir and Trump were, uh, I guess they were in a factory of some sort, and they were inside, and they were at least 12 feet apart doing this interview. Not the recommended six feet of social distancing, they were at least 12 feet apart. It looked like a Saturday Night Live sketch of what an interview uh, in the social distancing era might look like. It, it was absurd. Uh, when I saw the picture, my first thought was, You cannot be serious! Um, this guy, Donald Trump, is trying to reopen America. Let's face, let's, let's, let's be clear about how absurd this is. He wants to reopen America, and yet the President of the United States... And a major national news anchor can't sit within 12 feet of each other. That's not a message that's going to fly. That is not, we, we are in a crisis. We are in many crises right now. One of the crises we are in is that of confidence. You cannot have the confidence to reopen in what is being described as a, an unprecedented pandemic when the president can't sit closer than 12 feet feet to a news anchor doing a major interview. It's just not possible. So right there, right off the bat, 
Trump loses. His message is contradicted by the very fact that whoever made the decision, whether he, I mean, he agreed to it at some level. I'm sure it was Muir who put his chair. <laughs> Here's my guess. Having been part of, you know, I've never been part of a presidential interview, but I've been involved in a lot of network television interviews that are similar to this. My guess is Muir put his chair 12 feet away and Trump didn't think about it or who knows, maybe didn't want to uh, get closer than that. What Trump should have done is said, David, come on. Put the chair six feet away and and let's do this like men. Uh, But for some reason, Trump did not do that. And I think it sent a horrendous message. It was mocked on Twitter, but it doesn't even have to be mocked on Twitter. It's I think that this is the, the overall message that people get from this. It's way more important than the actual substance. And as far as the substance was concerned, there was there was a lot of talk about uh, the issue of reopening and whether or not that is going to make us more vulnerable to further medical damage and what the numbers actually are going to end up being. And uh, I, I would say probably the most focus on this interview was, oh, my gosh, Donald Trump, our president, was forced to acknowledge that if we reopen this country, people might die. Oh, my gosh. Oh, wow. Wow, this was an earth-shattering revelation to everybody, again, in the context of what I thought the deal was. I thought we understood this, folks. I thought that was what the deal was with flattening the curve and getting our hospitals ready. The deal was never end all death, which as human beings, we don't have the power to do. So much of this, by the way, so much of this crisis is being driven by this bizarre human desire to control death when we cannot control death. And I don't even know that we, if we can manipulate death, we might be able to delay death a little bit. And I'm not saying we don't try, but uh, th- that's at the heart of a lot of this uh, and what is driving a lot of it. But here uh, was David Muir with uh, Donald Trump uh, yesterday on this issue of the risks of reopening when it comes to increasing death. I want to ask you about what Dr. Fauci said last night about the reopening of the country. He said it's the balance of something that's a very difficult choice. How many deaths and how much suffering are you willing to accept to get back where you want to be? Do you see it that way? Do you believe that's the reality we're facing, that, that lives will be lost to reopen the country? It's possible there will be some because you won't be locked into an apartment or a, or a house or whatever it is. But at the same time, we're going to practice social distancing, we're going to be washing hands, we're going to be doing a lot of the things that we've learned to do over the last period of time. And we have to get our country back. You know, people are dying the other way, too. When you look at what's happened with drugs, it goes up. When you look at suicides, I mean, take a look at what's going on. People are losing their jobs. We have to bring it back, and that's what we're doing. Now, his last point there is an important one, one which he does not make nearly enough. I've always believed that the collateral medical damage is the best argument to be made here. Now, getting those numbers, I have found, even here locally in Southern California, is exceedingly difficult. And I don't think that's by coincidence. I think that there are people who are in charge here who are invested in not letting people know what the actual numbers are with regard to increased suicides or an increase in domestic violence or child abuse or murder or alcoholism or drug use or just general depression. And not to mention all the other surgeries that are being delayed, all the other ailments that are not uh, being found quickly enough because people aren't going to the doctor because they're afraid to go to the doctor or, or they're just not able to go to a doctor. I mean, there's all sorts of collateral medical damage being done here. But the idea, which Trump acknowledged and people freaked out about, that, you know what? It's possible that death rates might go up a little bit. We don't know. We hope not. Uh, but that is possible. Uh, I'm sorry, but the alternative is even worse. More people will die just for different reasons, not to mention, I'm sorry, the economic damage does matter. And there's a direct correlation between economic damage and medical damage. A, a point, again, Trump does not make nearly enough. I don't understand why he doesn't, uh, but he doesn't do it at least uh, as much as I think that he should. Now, as far as where we're headed with these numbers, 
Uh, here was David Muir. Again, I'm, Trump makes a mistake by accepting a completely false premise here, this idea uh, that somehow the numbers of dead were horrible and more than uh, I expected, more than Trump expected, more than Fauci expected just a few weeks ago, uh, that, um, that these numbers are somehow analogous to the number of people who died in Vietnam. Uh, but here's what that sounded like, some interesting uh, interchange here between Muir and Trump on the issue of the numbers and where we are headed. Talk about the embers and, and, and the possible big fires. There were two new studies out in the last 24 hours. I, I know that the White House has shot down a couple of them saying they weren't vetted through your task force. One was from Johns Hopkins that said the death rate could double if we're not careful with this reopening of America by, by June, the daily death rate. Uh, the University of Washington saying we could have 135,000 Americans dead by August. What do you make of those numbers, Mr. President? Uh, a couple of things. First of all, these models have been so wrong from day one, both on the low side and the upside. They've been so wrong. They've been so out of whack. And they keep making new models, new models, and they're wrong. Those models that you're mentioning are talking about without mitigation. Well, we're mitigating, and we've learned to mitigate, but we can be in place, work in place, and also mitigate. We've done it right, but now we have to get back to work. We have to do it. But let me ask you, because you've responded to those two new studies out with these forecasts, your own numbers have shifted over they time. Have. They you, have. you said 60,000 Americans could die. That's what you said last week. I watched your town hall right. over the weekend. You said 75, 80 to 100,000 people could die. Which models are you looking at? And, and what should yeah. Americans be prepared for as we reopen the country and head into the fall where we could see it a potential second wave? Well, the upper number was, as you know, 2.2 million people. And then there are some, some models or charts that showed higher than that, but 2.2 million people. I always felt 60, 65, 70, as, as horrible as that is. I mean, you're talking about filling up Yankee Stadium with death. So I thought it was horrible. But it's probably going to be somewhat higher than that. Are you still convinced we'll have a vaccine by year's end and 300 million doses, which you had spoken yeah. of? You can never be convinced. When you say, am I convinced? I can say this, we're doing really great. Oxford, Johnson & Johnson, these companies, and I get reports every single day. They're doing really great. Am I convinced? I can't be convinced of anything, but I think that we have a really good shot of having something very, very substantial. Now, you didn't hear it in that clip, but Muir actually does reference the Vietnam number, which Trump doesn't push back at all against elsewhere in the interview. And that just to me is a fatal mistake. And it's partially why Trump has lost this data war yet again, rather decisively. Now, he's still desperately trying to win the expectations game because now he's citing the 2.2 or 2.5 million number, which nobody really believed. And that was just used to scare the living daylights out of people to justify the massive shutdown. I mean, let's be clear what the 2 million plus number was. The 2 million plus number was if we had no knowledge of the virus whatsoever, and we tried as, as hard as we could to uh, spread it as much as we could, and we did absolutely nothing at all to mitigate, then I guess in theory we could have that kind of a number. But that's not realistic. That's not the way the world works. And, and so now Trump's trying to, to latch on to that number so that if, in fact, it turns into 100,000 or in that range, he can still somewhat declare victory. But this idea, and so much of this is about perception. We're dealing with something that we have never dealt with before. And therefore, people's perspectives and people's perceptions and their expectations are everything. And this idea that somehow you can compare uh, currently 73,000 people in America dying, which is, by the way, per capita, uh, nowhere near the worst in the world, but it's still bad. Uh, but it, you're comparing those 73,000 people to those who died in Vietnam? Really? Really? People seriously make that comparison. You cannot be serious! It is a completely, I mean, that is not just apples to oranges. That is apples to orangutans. That, that, that on so many levels, one of which, which you're not allowed, and this is this is one of the many problems in this whole deal. The other side is not allowed, literally. I, trust me, I know because I've tried on Twitter. Not allowed 
to use some basic facts. And one of the most basic facts about this is the average age of the person who has died. You're not allowed to ask that. You're not allowed. I try because I can't find I cannot find an answer to that question either for the United States as a whole or for the world as a whole. I can find it in certain locations. I can find it uh, in apparently in Germany. It's 81 uh, here in the United States in Massachusetts. It's 82 in Ohio. It's 80. And so so that that's basically what we're talking about here. The, the, the average age or the median, depending on uh, on which source you're talking about, uh, both of the, I actually think the median number is is more interesting than than the average number, uh, especially when you're when, let's face it, there's a cap on how old people get to. Very few people get over the age of a hundred. Uh, so so therefore, the average uh, is is always going to be uh, slightly skewed because there's no nobody's living to 150 that's going to skew it in the other direction. If you have one person who dies at the age of 20, uh, that skews the average. Uh, but so median is an interesting number. Half uh, die uh, younger than that, half die older than that. And the reality is, no matter how you slice it, no matter how difficult they make it to find how what the number actually is. I mean, it's a pretty damn basic fact, right? That number is somewhere at least in the mid-70s, if not higher than that. Uh, in many places, it's in the 80s. That does not mean those lives don't matter. But you cannot compare the death of an 80-year-old person of natural causes when they have underlying conditions to someone who uh, was 22 years old in perfect health and gets killed in Vietnam. Those are two totally different things at every level. And it's obvious, yet somehow Muir says that and Trump doesn't push back on it. And it's a, it's a huge error on his part. And, but he doesn't want to be seen as callous. I get it. It's very difficult. But this, is, this was supposed to be Trump's forte, that he's willing and able to say things no one else will say, do, and, do things no one else will do. You know, he's got balls down to his knees. I, I, I mean, none of that has happened here. Uh, and, and I know that there are people who are supporters of Trump who are saying, well, he's just waiting. He's waiting to get his balls back for the right time. You know what? <laughs> Part of me would actually like to see that. I, I, I am doubtful. Uh, I am doubtful, um, partially because I'm not sure the data is ever going to let him because I don't know what's going to happen with the data. Uh, I've been right about a lot of uh, locations and them not exploding, probably way more right than many of the experts have been. I've been wrong a couple of times in the general overall numbers. I will say this about these projections that this is just going to continue on. Uh, that uh, we're going to keep getting around 20, 30,000 new cases a day, and we're going to get, you know, 1,500 to 2,000 deaths for an extended period of time. This is not going to have a normal 8, 9, 10-week uh, bell curve, uh, that we're just going to continue having this. And that is possible, but I would ask you to think about this one possibility where they have something fundamentally wrong, and that is, what the definition or what it means to have a new case of coronavirus. I believe that that definition now seven weeks into this has fundamentally changed. When you had a new case of coronavirus seven weeks ago, what did that mean? That mean meant you were really sick. You were sick enough to know Oh, my gosh, I got to get to the hospital. I need to force a test. Tests were not easily uh, uh, obtained back then. They were not readily available. And if you got a test of coronavirus and you tested positive seven weeks ago, that was really bad news. We're living in a completely different world now here in the United States seven weeks later. We are ex our tests have exploded we have tested by far the most number of people in the world. At the end of March, we had barely over 1 million tests countrywide. We are now at the beginning of May, and we are about almost at 8 million tests. 8 million. So we're, we're almost 7 million more tests in just over a month period of time. What does that mean? Well, that means the threshold for getting a test is way lower, way lower than it was seven weeks ago or even just a few weeks ago. That also then means 
more people are getting the test who are probably not that sick to begin with. Many people are getting a test just almost out of curiosity to see, did I, do I have this? Did I have this? So my theory on this is that these, these projections, these models are based upon what it meant for there to be a new case seven weeks ago and what that did to the death rate and not what it means to be a new case today and what that might mean to the death rate three or four weeks from now. Because you got to remember the biggest lag in all this data, I've talked about the lag in data constantly. The biggest lag in this data is from the time someone gets the virus to the time they die especially in areas that are not overwhelmed where there's, you know, and, and there, I, I believe that being put on a ventilator is basically a death sentence. And the whole ventilator thing was one of the most overblown controversies in this whole uh, situation. But w- nowhere in the country right now is there a, a major of any shortage of ventilators. So it takes a long time in many cases uh, for people to die. So what I think is possible, and, I, and I'll be the first to admit I'm wrong on this, but I think it is possible that what we have here are two things happening simultaneously that are screwing with these, these more doomsday-ish projections. Number one, the people who are confirmed cases now are not nearly in as much trouble as they were seven weeks ago. That's number one. And number two, we are still seeing people dying from four weeks ago, five weeks ago sometimes. That, that is incredibly important. So in theory, under, under my theory, it is possible that the death rate among those who are confirmed cases is going to go down dramatically in the next couple of weeks. That's my hope. I think it makes sense. Whether it's true or not, I don't know. But it would not surprise me at all if that is a presumption uh, that is a flawed one, which is screwing with these projections that are now getting us back into the well over 100,000. By the way, it would not shock me if we end up very close to 100,000 deaths sometime uh, in in the middle of summer. Uh, That is a horrible number, uh, but that is not by any historical standard, a catastrophe to the degree uh, that has warranted a complete and total shutdown of the United States of America. And uh, and, you know, Trump has I thought I think Trump has done a horrendous job at every level of this. He was unprepared at the beginning uh, and he might have even been uh, more than just negligent at the beginning. Uh, There was a whistleblower complaint that was filed officially yesterday by Dr. Rick Bright, the former director of the federal agency that oversees vaccine development. He says that early warnings about the virus went ignored by the Trump administration and that he was fired after voicing concerns about controversial drugs pushed by Trump. His congressional testimony is expected next week. Now, if any of that is true, it is beyond outrageous. We're better than that. Uh, I mean, it's absurd. I mean, it's impeachable material if we were in a normal world and not in an election year. Uh, and heck, if we even have Congress in session right now. Um, so I'm, I'll wait and you know see his testimony to see how credible it is. You have to keep in mind he's been fired. Uh, he may have an ax to grind. Uh, who knows? But it's important that people at least understand that that's out there. Uh, I think he is, Trump has been completely wrong, uh, not just in how he handled it from the beginning as far as preparations were concerned, especially when, with regard to testing, but also with regard to messaging. His messaging has been all over the place. It has been disastrous. It has, it has been counterproductive. It has helped his enemies. It has put him in a very precarious political position, and he has not helped his allies at all. Many of his base of supporters are basically out there, almost literally outside protesting on their own on a limb that he's liable to cut off at any moment. um, And I'll talk about the protests uh, in in just a little bit because I actually participated in one uh, here in Southern California. But there are, you know, as far as the data is concerned, there continue to be several places that I personally uh, have been looking at very, very carefully Obviously, Sweden is one that everyone is looking at. Here's another area where Trump made a massive mistake. 
this was astonishing to me, even by Trump standards. Uh, last week, Trump went on a riff about how uh, horrible the numbers are in Sweden. Uh, and, you know, they're a disaster and, you know, people are dying there all over the place. And I thought, what a complete jackass. What a freaking moron. You do understand, uh, Donald Trump, that you're trying to get us eventually to be like Sweden. I mean, that's our goal, according to what he's saying. I mean, if we're going to reopen with voluntary social distancing, then essentially that's the Swedish model. And if if you're saying that Sweden is a disaster, then uh, how in the world can we possibly be like Sweden? Especially when... You know, over half the country doesn't even trust you to begin with. So so coming from you, it's going to have even more of a counterproductive impact because people will say, well, even Trump thinks that Sweden is a disaster. I look at the Swedish numbers every single day. It's one of the first things I do in the morning. That's how pathetic my life is. I wake up, I check what's going on with Sweden uh, uh, because I happen to think that Sweden in the end of this is going to largely be vindicated. Their numbers early on looked bad. They're worse than their direct neighbors in Scandinavia. They are not, however, even with a bad early outbreak, they are not as bad as several other European countries, including uh, Netherlands, including Belgium, France, which has had an incredibly hard lockdown, is doing much worse than Sweden. And in the last couple of weeks, I believe Sweden's, I'm almost positive about this, Sweden's highest per day death rate was just over 100 deaths on April 21st. Since then, they have been on a downward trend. And it's it's not, you know, anywhere near the best in the region or in the world, but this is a long quote-unquote game that's being played here. They're also not getting a near I'm sure nearly as much of the collateral damage. Uh, their economy is going to be hurt like everybody else's is. But they're going to be in, 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 I believe, a better shape uh, going forward once this is finally over than a lot of other places are. And we're still dealing with a fairly small number of deaths even there. It's below 3,000. Uh, again, it looks worse because uh, of their exact neighbors in Scandinavia. But the idea that Trump is using them as a model for what not to do, I thought was one counterproductive and two ignorant. And it made me feel like, you know what happened? Fauci told him the numbers in Sweden were terrible because Fauci is invested against the Swedish model. Because if the Swedish model works, everybody like Fauci looks like a complete asshole. So they don't want that. They don't want Sweden to succeed. Uh, and, you know, I, I constantly on Twitter am confronting uh, people in academia or in the science realm or in the media realm who are actively rooting for certain places to have explosions in bad data. Uh, I, I got in a, in a fight with a with a doctor uh, last week about Germany. I, I mean, this person thought that Germany was reopening uh, too soon. Because, uh, you know, they had, their inflection rate had increased uh, slightly in a couple of days. And the reason why that had happened was because their inflection rate was so incredibly low that a little blip in the data made it look bad. And since then, of course, nothing has happened in Germany. Germany has been an absolute model uh, for, for how to deal with this uh, for, for a lot of reasons. And they've handled it much more efficiently than the United States. I also find it interesting to look at Africa. It's talking about bad projections. You know, it was uh, about three weeks ago that the United Nations issued a warning for the continent of Africa that they might lose up to three million people. The continent of Africa was going to lose three million people. This was three weeks ago. Three weeks ago. Three million people. You know what happened yesterday in Nigeria, in the biggest city in all of Africa? They reopened with less than 100 deaths in the entire country of Nigeria. I, I, how is that possible? How is that possible? It's just flat out ridiculous. Uh, but I mean, frankly, I thought when I when I read the U.N. Uh, warning three weeks ago, I was like, this is this is the most racist thing I've ever seen in my life. These these people think that the great unwashed black people of Africa can't handle this. That's that's what that's what I'm that's my perception of this. Not to mention that these people almost seem to be rooting for, for this kind of result. And it, and it did not happen. By the way, I mentioned Sweden. This, this, I love this. I love this. Three, uh, less than three weeks ago, a, a Swedish 
quote-unquote expert, predicted that in Stockholm alone, Stockholm alone, would by this date have 600,000 confirmed cases of coronavirus. Well, didn't come anywhere close to that. The entire country is still somewhere in the 20,000s. Uh, way, 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 way below. So I mentioned this, and um, the reactions, well, no, John, you don't understand. The, the people that put that study out realized that they had made a mistake and they retracted it. Well, well that's the whole point! We're making decisions based upon these projections that turn out to be flat wrong and in some cases are based on, on clear-cut mistakes. You don't get a mulligan on that because they, these projections are scaring people and impacting decisions. There are other countries that are doing extraordinarily well. Australia continues to be amazing. I, I, I wonder whether or not the southern hemisphere has an advantage here coming out of summer or whether or not maybe they're going to have it worse going forward, although Brazil is now getting hit very hard. Italy is going back uh, to work uh, finally. Here in the United States, I, I continue to track the six states that the media is very very hopeful for an eventual uh, coronavirus outbreak to occur in. Uh, they all happen to be red Trump states. I, I'm sure this is a complete and total coincidence, uh, but uh, Florida, Texas, Georgia, Iowa, Arkansas, and South Dakota have all been the subject of a lot of concern trolling by the media. Oh, my gosh. These states, they didn't close down soon enough. They didn't close down uh, properly. Uh, they've had an outbreak here. The doom is on the horizon, uh, even in these rural places. And um, it just has not happened as of yet. It just has not happened. I keep charting it. Uh, yesterday, if you lived in one of those six states, if you lived in one of those six states, the chances of you dying of coronavirus in this one day was, I believe, one in 436,000. One in 436,000. The chances of dying of anything on any given day in America is about one in 41,000. So part of the problem here is people don't understand numbers. They don't understand perspective. I'm not saying this isn't serious. I understand that people are going to say that I'm... I'm a blasphemer. I, I I am against the religion here that this is the worst. You know, it is absolutely the worst thing that's ever happened in its totality. Uh, but we're making this way worse than it needs to be based upon what the reality is. And, of course, all of this fear and some reality is based on what has happened in New York City and the surrounding area. And this continues statistically with some exceptions. Uh, there, you know, Detroit, Chicago. New Orleans, those are basically the only major city exceptions, and they're nowhere near what's happened in New York City. If New York City was anywhere near normal, this whole thing in the United States would be perceived very, very differently. And we're learning more and more about why New York City was different. And uh, it's astonishing, but just the last couple of, day, couple of days ago, New York uh, City finally decided, guess what we're going to do? Guess what we're going to do? We're going to, get this, we're going to regularly clean the subways. We're going to, we've decided that maybe it would be a good idea, since we've kept the subways open through all this, we're going to clean them. Give them a good cleaning. You know what? That seems like a really good idea after all these people have died over the last uh, seven or eight weeks. You cannot be serious. I mean, common sense is dead, folks. It, it is completely dead. Uh, and um, and we're all uh, suffering for it, especially here in the United States. And, you know, something else that's happening, uh, which deals a lot with numbers. And, and I'm a big believer in perspective. And I'm a big believer that the news media will blow it every possible time they can. One of the narratives that we're seeing in the news media is not just look at these red states that are heading for doom. We're also seeing now because the numbers have been high, but they haven't been as high as some in the media would like them to be. I mean, the media would like them to be in, an, in a realm where no one can argue that uh, the shutdown was justified. No one can argue that Trump did a horrible job. And so the numbers haven't been quite to where they would like them to be, especially outside of New York. So here's the next narrative. There are other things happening that are directly related to the coronavirus that we just haven't been able to connect directly to the coronavirus. And let me give you a specific example. 
And again, I'm offering a different perspective that I believe is justified based on logic and numbers. You probably have heard, because it's gotten a lot of publicity, that 15 children in the New York City area, I believe in New York City, have been hospitalized with a mysterious illness similar to a syndrome called uh, Kawasaki disease. I have no idea what Kawasaki disease is. It is not the coronavirus. It sounds horrible. Uh, and th- th- these are young kids. They're all teenagers or younger who are in New York City's hospital uh, hospitals. And, you know, I hope for them that everything turns out OK. Uh, however, the news media is trying to turn this into a coronavirus story, that this might be one of the side effects that's occurring among the youth. Now, part of the reason why the media is very interested in this narrative is because one of the great weaknesses in the shutdown argument is children have been largely unimpacted by this, which makes you wonder why the hell our schools are closed. But that's another story for another day, maybe. Uh, But the reality is that that has been a, a pretty well set part of the narrative. Children are not vulnerable. So if we're finding new evidence that children might be vulnerable, that would be obviously very, very significant and would greatly heighten the fear and the urgency. So uh, when you read that headline, that's troubling. Wow. Possibly connected to coronavirus, 15 children in New York City hospitalized. And then, of course, you um, you look at the details. I always like to look at the details of the story. And uh, when you learn uh, that, um, guess what? Um Only four of the 15 actually have coronavirus. And uh, six have the antibodies for coronavirus. And five have not had coronavirus at all. Now, can we use our brains for just a second here? We are talking about a city that has been hit harder by far than any other city in America. Um, So two-thirds of those in the hospital have had some uh, either had or have coronavirus. A third have not. It's basically a third, third, and third. A third have had it, a third have it, a third do not have it. And they're all in the hospital for this thing that we have no evidence connects directly to coronavirus. We're also in a city where it's not unusual, especially with an incredibly small sample size, for two-thirds... of the population to have been impacted by coronavirus. These numbers are, especially with a very small sample size, they're not anywhere near outside the norm of what you might expect of any random sample of people in New York City. And it's also important to point out, it's, it is an, an adage that is 100% true. It's, most people don't even understand what this means, but it's a, it's a bedrock principle of science, because I'm all sciencey and all. Correlation does not prove causation, especially with such a small sample size, and especially in this kind of a situation. I guess there's an exception to the correlation does not mean causation rule when the media finds a narrative that they like. That, those rules are thrown out. And we've seen this constantly. And, 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 and let me broaden this for a second. One of the greatest um, lessons I ever learned as a child in school, I'll never forget this, my sixth grade social studies teacher, Mr. Schroeder, greatest lesson I ever got at that level was, and this was way back in the dark ages, the olden days, as my daughter says, uh, in the 80s, where there were basically no computers. But we were, we, we were so excited that we had a computer that could type out uh, little dots or Xs all over a page, right? Bear with me for a second. So there was the experiment. And I don't remember how many dots or Xs could fit on a page, but it was, you know, several hundred, if not more, maybe thousands uh, of dots that could fit on a page, right? So we, we took as many pages as we could as part of this exercise, and uh, we papered our classroom with white paper covered in Xs or dots from this computer printer. And the point of this was to see how large the number a million is. And the, the goal was to try to get a million dots papered all over our classroom. 
so we could understand what the number a million means. And my recollection is we had the entire room papered with these pages with printed dots, and we couldn't get over 400,000 through the whole for the whole classroom, normal size classroom. And I remember thinking, wow, a million is a really big freaking number. Well, we now have one point almost three million people in the United States who are confirmed cases of coronavirus. You know what that means? That you now have a pool of people that is massive. And among that massive pool, the law of averages are strange things are going to happen. It is just the law of averages. You take a pool of 1.3 million people, you're going to be able to find anything you want. And we're living in an era now where everything about coronavirus, if it's outside the norm or if it extends the narrative, is an instant news story. So this allows the news media to cherry pick whatever they want. They can find whatever trend they want among that uh, that pool of 1.3 million people. And it doesn't matter that correlation doesn't uh, mean causation because all they need is a handful of people that had or have coronavirus and they're all suffering this one thing. And voila, this is an after effect or a side effect of coronavirus. I don't know whether it is or it isn't. I'm just telling you that the, the stories are based on faulty thinking and it's important This is where the rubber really meets the road. It is incredibly important because the media is going to cherry pick all these stats, especially in targeted areas that are trying to open up. The media is going to sabotage the efforts to open up in America, especially in the red states. You're already seeing it. Watch for it in Georgia specifically. Any flare out flare up whatsoever uh, that happens in Georgia is going to be seen through a microscope. It is going to be blown out of proportion. It's going to be cherry picked. And Donald Trump has already acknowledged that he's going to be sensitive to that, that he's going to turn off the spigot if we find evidence of that. Correct. And that, uh, to me, you might as well stick a fork in us because we're done. Uh, Because if that's the threshold now, uh, then we can't go forward. And if we can't go forward now, I don't know when we can possibly go forward uh, because I don't believe there's going to be a vaccine anytime soon. Now, I mentioned uh, that there is protests going on. Uh, I, I actually took part in uh, our protest here in Ventura County, just uh, north of Los Angeles in Southern California. And I wanted to play a couple of clips because I one because I thought they were humorous. Let me be clear about why I did this one, because I, I think that our freedoms and liberties are being unfairly and absurdly uh, confined here in an area that has had almost no cases of the virus. We have had in our county of 850,000 people just barely over 100 hospitalizations since the beginning of this fiasco when our medical officer predicted we would have four to 600 per day of new hospitalizations. He's been totally wrong. And for whatever reason, and there's some logical ones, which I've written about in a column, uh, why California's story actually goes against shutdowns, which I urge you to check out at our Twitter feed, which is at individual one pod. Uh, the column I wrote for media yesterday really tells a completely different story about how California really transpired and why it should make all of us question the presumptions that these shutdowns are based in. But uh, so the, philosophically, I've been horrified as a libertarian by what's been going on here in Southern California. But from a real world perspective, the real reason why I participated in this was that my daughter, seven year old Grace, uh, has shown to me um, to be far, far, far more accepting of what the man tells her to do uh, than I find uh, comforting. And so I wanted to acclimate her to the idea uh, that protest is okay, uh, that uh, voicing your opinion is okay. And so what I did was I actually had her stand next to me uh, on the makeshift uh, makeshift stage. It wasn't even a stage. It was a bench uh, that we used in in the government center uh, near where I live. She was holding a sign, which was hilarious. Uh, because the sign said, uh, I want to go back to school or something like that. Uh, trust me, she doesn't really want to go back to school. Uh, and she's not a very good reader. So she had no idea. what she, she was just holding a sign that someone gave her. But she was having a blast. She thought this was fantastic. And there were two things I want to play for you from 
the rally. The first is I had gone through a series of things that the protesters here believe and things that they don't actually believe because the media is completely purposely misinterpreting what people who are against the lockdowns uh, are actually for and what they're against. And I went through a series of pretty obvious things. I mean, the protesters are not in favor of death. They're not against old people. Uh, we're not in favor of the virus. We're not in favor of doing nothing. Uh, we're in favor of common sense. And then I jokingly started to say, uh, are we all Donald Trump supporters? Because that's how we're going to be perceived by the news media. And unfortunately, there's some reality to that. And so here's the uh, half-joking uh, way in which I handled that and listened to how the very pro-Trump crowd isn't sure how to respond to my assessment of Donald Trump when it comes to his reaction to this uh, whole situation. Are we all Donald Trumps? Don't answer that. Don't, don't, don't answer that. Don't answer that question. Uh, for the record, I am not a Donald Trump supporter. However, if he found his balls, I might be. I was told there would be balls, but apparently there aren't. There were about a thousand people at this rally in almost total silence because no one knows how to respond to that. (laughs) No one's cheering because they're all Trump supporters or almost all of them. Uh, But no one's really booing or hissing because they kind of know I'm right. Uh, But I do believe that that's a a very, very big issue in all of this. And then I broadened it. This is how I ended my little uh, seven or eight minute speech to the about a thousand people outside on a beautiful day in Ventura County, uh, California, where I addressed the media and I addressed law enforcement, the two entities that I think are going to be critical to how this uh, these shutdowns play out, not just here in California, but around the country. I want to address the media and law enforcement because those two elements are incredibly important for getting us out of this situation. The media is completely and totally invested in a doomsday narrative. But let me address the media members who are here. We know you're going to lie about us. We already know that. But consider your own self-interest. Because the longer this goes on, guess what's going to happen? Small businesses are going to die. Advertising for your entities, your outlets, your newspapers are going to die. And guess who's going to be out of a job? You, the news media. It's in your self-interest to bring some sense of sanity back to this and for us to get back to our lives. And then finally, law enforcement. I grew up my entire life believing that law enforcement were the good guys. Law enforcement were there to protect our rights, not to take them away. There is going to be a major issue here with regard to whether or not these edicts continue to be enforced. I believe that Governor Newsom, or Poosom as Grace refers to him, Governor Poosom's attempt to shut down all of the beaches was was disrupted because he did not believe law enforcement was going to enforce it for him. Law enforcement needs to make a decision. Are they on the side of the people? Or are they on the side of tyranny? I have taught my daughter that law enforcement were the good guys. Grace is very, very in tune throughout all the stories she watches, all the movies. Who were the good guys and who are the bad guys? I now no longer know whether law enforcement are the good guys or the bad guys. And she doesn't either. Law enforcement, please be part of the good guys. Protect us. Do not take our rights away. Use some common sense. Let's get back to life here in Ventura County. And let freedom ring. God bless America. Or at least what's left of it. And in the great words of Mel Gibson and Braveheart, my freaking mind this is this is the situation we're in here folks where uh, a person like me has absolutely nowhere to turn we no one uh, to support no one to root for because everyone has uh, forsaken us everyone has betrayed us uh, Trump's lost his balls and doesn't make any sense and has no credibility. The other side is, is turning into fascists and running our lives for reasons that make no sense. 
And look, I have taken an enormous amount of heat for my position on this whole thing. Uh, but and I have admitted when I was I have been wrong, but I have been absolutely right, especially when it comes to the situation here in Southern California. And I once again refer to you uh, to that column I wrote uh, yesterday for media, which you can find at our uh, Twitter feed, which is at individual, the number one pod. That's at individual, the number one pod. Now, as far as where we're heading with regard to this election and Donald Trump's attempt to be reelected, uh, obviously Joe Biden has been embroiled in this allegation of sexual abuse by a woman by the name of Tara Reid, who worked for him briefly back in 1993. I do not believe Tara Reid's story, but I do believe that it has far more substantiation, far more corroboration than the story of Christine Ford that almost brought down Brett Kavanaugh when he was attempting to be a Supreme Court nominee and eventually would be confirmed to the Supreme Court uh, by the slimmest of margins. And I think the media has been caught and the liberals have been caught in a massive double standard here. Uh, If Christine Ford is to be believed, then Tara Reid should be believed, even though I don't believe Christine Ford was telling the truth. I happen to believe Christine Ford uh, had a story that was created in therapy, uh, and she may believe it's true, uh, but I don't believe that it happened. There's no corroboration for it happening. There's no proof that she ever even met Brett Kavanaugh. Well, at least Tara Reid can prove that she met Joe Biden. Uh, And she has some interesting corroboration, people that she told around the time period who insist that she said this happened. Her mother called into the Larry King show on a a show about sexual abuse uh, that uh, was very interesting, a little vague, doesn't mention Joe Biden by name, but references a prominent uh, senator at the exact same time when her daughter was leaving uh, Joe Biden's office. Even that being said, I do not believe the allegation. The allegation doesn't ring true to me. There are problems with her credibility. She has denied it constantly. She denied it even last year. The way that she has come forward with this, I do not believe should be taken as inherently credible without an enormous amount of evidence. But with all that said, it's still going to be a problem for Joe Biden because uh, of the issue of hypocrisy, the, the Bernie Sanders supporters uh, have been trying to use this desperately against him. Uh, it, it, it's it, at this point, it's at the level of an annoyance. And it was in enough of an annoyance. And I wrote a column about this last week as part of the the, uh, the media onslaught of saying, hold on a second, there seems to be a double standard with regard to sex abuse allegations and the way Democrats are handling this. So it was enough of an irritation for Joe Biden to actually go on MSNBC and do a live interview with Mika, Mika Brzezinski uh, of Morning Joe. Uh, a show I used to go on fairly regularly a long, long time ago, but would never go on uh, now for, for various reasons. Uh, and the, this interview did not go well for Joe Biden. Uh, it, it didn't change my mind, really, that he was innocent, but he handled it rather poorly. And he handled it poorly, I believe, for two reasons. One, uh, it's not an easy, well, three reasons. It's not an easy subject, and liberals have basically made it impossible for themselves to defend against sex abuse allegations because the rules that they have created are totally nonsensical. Number two, he's not very good at this kind of thing uh, because he's older and he's lost his fastball and he, he, his mental acuity is definitely in question. And number three, because of the... Uh, the, the virus and the quarantine and the social distancing, this interview was not done in person. It wasn't even done by the 12-foot standard of Trump and Muir. This was done via remote satellite interview from, I guess, his home. Well, that's a huge mistake on the part of the Biden people. Uh, and, and whether or not you could actually do this interview in person, I don't know. I think you could. But in these kind of an interviews, especially with an old person, Body language matters. Uh, it matters that he's in the room with Mika and, uh, you know, he gets to say, hi, how you doing? It sets a tone. Instead, there's none of that. It's remote. There's a slight delay in the audio. There's no way to, to communicate uh, via body language. Uh, I've done many, many interviews via uh, satellite and in person, and they are completely, totally different entities. And especially in, in this kind of a subject matter, this interview needs to be done in person. Now, I have no idea what the debate was within the, the, the Biden campaign as to how to handle it. Uh, but I would have never allowed my candidate if I was in the uh, God forbid, if I was working for the Joe Biden campaign, I would never have allowed him to do a, an interview of this kind of sensitivity uh, via a remote connection. 
It just is not going to work. And it did not work. And it, it did not kill the story. Now, there hasn't been any new explosions, really. Uh, there were a couple attempted explosions that, that didn't go anywhere. Uh, so I don't know whether or not this is going to be an ongoing issue. I'm sure we'll hear, hear about it again. I do not believe it's in any threat at this point to somehow blow Joe Biden off the ballot. Uh, but it's going to be a continuing annoyance. And I, I think we're also seeing that there are certain ways in which the shutdown and how it's going to impact campaigning and interacting with the media help Joe Biden. And then there are certain areas where it hurts Joe Biden. And this was one where it absolutely did not help him. That being said, I still believe that Joe Biden would beat Donald Trump if the election was today. I feel very strongly about that. He would beat Donald Trump if the election were today. However, the current numbers, while they favor Biden, are not at all dissimilar. And in some ways, they're actually not as good as what the numbers were back in 2016 at about this time uh, when it looked like it was going to be Hillary versus Trump. In fact, Hillary's numbers were even better against Trump in some ways. Now, we're living in a totally different world now. The dust hasn't completely settled. Uh, but Trump's approval ratings have not collapsed because of this coronavirus situation. They're actually a little bit higher than they were before all of this. I still believe that uh, there is a path. It is a narrowing path. There is a path uh, for Donald Trump to be reelected. And it's actually a path that is wider because of liberal overreaction than it otherwise normally would be. And it's also because Joe Biden is not the greatest candidate that could uh, be conceived of. He was just the least bad candidate that was running for the Democratic nomination. So with all that said, I'm going to put the current chances of Donald Trump's reelection at 30 percent. Again, please no wagering. Please keep your social distance. Well, that'll do it for this episode of the Individual One podcast. Until next week, please remember to subscribe, rate, review, and share this via social media. Follow us on Twitter at Individual, the number one pod. That's at individual the number one pod until next time my name is john ziegler you're listening to the global story network